0: Today's message was recorded live at the Middletown Seventh-day Adventist Church of Louisville, Kentucky, a safe environment where people relationships become kingdom relationships. Find us online at www.friendlychurch.com. Happy Sabbath, church family. I pray that they can hear me. Is it okay? Is it on? You know, I, uh, I looked on uh, our praise team leaders, our worship leaders' order of service, and I saw their, you know, uh, family time, and I, I do not know what that was all about, um, but we are all family, um, and I, I really do appreciate this body of believers who are my family. Um, I have a brother who lives in the north side of Atlanta in a little town called Lawrenceville, Georgia. And other than him, I have cousins that are way up, one close to Canada, one one in Canada, and her sister down in Orlando. I don't have family in the United States. I don't have anybody here. I do have you, and now I have Pam. God has brought Pam, and her boys into my life, and I really do appreciate, and I love you, and uh, I'm so grateful for the card and the gift you have presented us. Uh, it goes both ways, you know. We, we really, we really appreciate to be here and to, to be on this spiritual journey together. This is the second sermon in a two-part series, Fear versus Faith. A legend from the Middle Ages tells of a traveler who met fear and plague one night on their way to London. They were expected to kill 10,000 people. And a traveler asked Plague if you would do the, all the killing. Oh no, said Plague, I shall kill only a few hundred. My friend Fear will kill the rest. The question of the day, where is God when we have Fear. The Bible reads in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and self-control. Let's bow our heads for one other prayer. Lord, thank you that you have brought us to this point in our worship service today, when we can open your word and teach us about this important topic. It is an emotion we feel in our lives over and over again. And Lord, I pray that you will bring, bring insight and hope through this message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you put on your imaginary hat for a moment? You know, at VBS, Vacation Bible School, every year, we have a station called Imagination Station where we invite and we guide our kids to imagine about wonderful things. Would you put your imagination hat on? Can you imagine a perfect world? I know it's 2020 and it's hard to imagine a perfect world. I know that. But you can close your eyes and imagine yourself in a place that is exceedingly beautiful. You can see beautiful mountains and hills and plains intermixed with clean water rivers and lovely lakes and the hills and the mountains are not too steep or too sharp or rugged and they're abounding with trees coming out of the fruitful soil which everywhere you look produces a luxuriant green garden graceful shrubs and delicate flowers meet your eye at Every turn. The air. Oh. The air. The air you breathe is. And feels fresh. And it seems like it has a. It has a fresh scent to it. It has an aroma. It has a perfume. And now you're not at perfumania Or any cosmetics store. Retail store. You, you You're in the middle of the. Nature. And there is this clear and healthy air that your lungs enjoy breathing in. The entire landscape is perfectly decorated with beauty. The grounds you uh, you look like you're you're standing in the middle, in, in the most beautifully decorated, beautifully landscaped palace. And not just the the mountains and the rivers and the lakes and the trees and the flowers, but they're also all sorts of animals and they're friendly to you. They enjoy your presence and you enjoy having them around you. And you are told that Everything you see in this imaginary place, everything you see, plants or animals, weather or the earth, they're all under your command. Imagine you like this tree and you walk up to it and start talking to the leaves and they talk back to you, telling you all you need to know about that tree. Imagine you like this lion, and you want to pet him. And you ask him to come over to you. And not only he comes to you, but tells you how much he appreciates when you're rubbing his back. You don't have a thermostat because you're not in a house. You live in this beautiful, perfectly designed and decorated garden. And the, the green shrubs on the sides are the walls and the sky is your ceiling. Rather than having that thermostat on the wall, you simply say, I want to have cooler temperature tonight and no humidity. And there you go. Perfect temperature and perfect ambience for a restful night. Oh, and wait, before you go to bed, I want to say this, you and your wife are wearing no artificial clothing. In fact, you're wearing nothing at all. All you wear is covering of light and glory, such that of the angels. You are completely open to your life partner, and you both enjoy a relationship of honesty, openness, and sincere love. And before you go to bed, guess what? What? Guess who visits you every night? Can you imagine? God himself comes and goes for a walk with you in this wonderfully and perfectly designed place. And you and your family are enjoying a nice walk with God before you go to bed. And he's so fond about you and your family and about the relationship he has with you all. As far as emotions, all you feel from the early morning, when the sun comes up, to the time when you go to sleep, all you feel is an extraordinary feeling of peace, calm, and joy. There is no particle of negativity or fear, or hurt, or pain in your daily life. Everything you know is beautiful nature, edifying loving relationships, and pain-free life. Can you imagine such a place? Can you? Welcome! to the world of Adam and Eve before sin enter the world. You can open your eyes now. Welcome to paradise. Welcome to the Garden of Eden. In her book, *Petrarch's and Prophets, page 47, Ellen White, writing about the Garden of Eden, said, everything that God has made was Perfection was the perfection of beauty, and nothing seemed wanting that could contribute to the happiness of the holy pair. They had everything. The holy pair, referring to Adam and Eve, were not only children under the fatherly care of God, but they were also students receiving instructions directly from the all-wise Creator. And they were visited by angels and were granted communion with their maker with no obscuring veil between. Nothing between each other and nothing between them and God. Nothing. They were full of the vigor imparted by the tree of life. And their intellectual power has but little less than that of the angels. That's how it is described right there in page 47 of that of this book, Petrarchs and Prophets. But you and I know that the story does not end there. You and I know it because this year, this 2020 is nothing like what we've just imagined. What we imagined was true and real in Genesis one and two, but then in Genesis three comes. When Genesis three comes, the world's destiny takes a turn for the worse. Open your me, open with me your Bibles, Bibles. If you if you don't have them, hard copy. I know you have them on your phones and tablets and so on, open with me your Bibles, your app Bible, Bible app to Genesis chapter one, the last verse of Genesis chapter one, verse 31, Moses wrote, then God saw everything that he has made and indeed it was very good. And in original, when you say very good, it's like good, good. It was good, good, which means it doesn't get any better than that. It's perfect. God created everything perfect according to his estimation. As Moses recorded it for us to read in the book of Genesis, God saw everything that he has made and indeed was very good. Genesis 1.31. And... And in that perfect world, God placed Adam and Eve. He placed the first couple. He placed them there to live. And he let them enjoy a perfect, blissful life. The life that he created them for. And he said to them. Now turn to Genesis 2 verses 16 to 17. And God said to them, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What is this in verse 17, Genesis 2, 17? You shall not eat. It's a command, right? It's a rule. It is a law. So as you can see, in God's perfect world, there is law and order. My friends, God did not create chaos and disorder. God created everything He made. He made perfect And in that perfectly made world, God placed Adam and and Eve, and He gives them the first rule to obey. A rule that, if it's not obeyed, comes with a consequence. Can you see it? Even in a perfectly God-made world... There are rules, and breaking the rules are followed by consequences. And now we turn to chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. And I'm going to read from New King James Version in my Bible. I'm going to interact with the Word for the few, few verses of chapter 3. Genesis 3, verse Beginning with verse 1, Now the serpent, this happens in in the Garden of Eden, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What did we read in Genesis 2.17? What did God say? Indeed commanded them not to eat, right? What are we talking about, serpent? Verse 2, Genesis 3, verse 2. And the woman, Eve, said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, verse 4 the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Let me ask you Do you know of anybody who died? We all have lost a loved one to death. How truthful is a serpent's statement? And he goes on to add, verse 5, Genesis 3, verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And now Moses narrates, he writes it in a narrative form, what happened? Verse 6, Genesis 3, verse 6, So when the woman, when Eve saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig fig leaves together and made themselves, what? Coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Here is God coming to go for a walk with them. And Adam and his wife hid themselves. What did they do? They hid themselves From the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then Lord God called Adam and said, Hey Adam, where are you? Do you think God knew where he was? Now pay attention to Adam's response. That comes to the essence of our sermon. So he said, Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. Adam was what? Afraid because I was naked and hid myself. What emotion was Adam feeling? Fear. What did they feel before the fall? Did they feel love? Sure they did. Did they feel joy? Yes. How about peace? Do you think they had patience with each other before they knew sin? Of course. How about expressing kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness to each other and to God? Can you see how they naturally and organically were living a life in the fullness of God's Holy Spirit fruit? Wow! That was the life before they sinned, before the fall. What did they experience immediately after? Shame and fear. Shame causes us to cover up, right? They immediately... Try to cover up, and, 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 and fear causes us to hide. Today is Halloween Day. It's the, the end of what I call the Halloween season, the, the fear season. When people are looking to feel fear, they want to be scared, they want to have fear. In fact, the entire 2020 could go down in history as the year of fear. Do you know that the whole world experiences a pandemic? What's that pandemic about? Not necessarily about COVID, it's about fear. People are living on the edge this weekend in the United States because they are literally driven by fear. People are experiencing fear about the outcome of our presidential election this coming Tuesday. I went to the Bible and did a word study. I was, I was inspired by one of my readings and I, I went to fear and looked for the word fear in the Bible. Paradoxically, the term fear appears in two forms in the Bible. One form is the appropriate and proper attitude toward God. The Bible calls this the fear of the Lord, which is wisdom, according to Job twenty-eight twenty-eight. In fact, David says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom in Psalm 111, verse 10. Or Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs eight, thirteen. The fear of the Lord is a treasure, according to Isaiah 33, verse 6. And the same notion runs all the way through the New Testament. The unrighteous judge in Jesus' par- parable is quoted as, as, as saying... I neither fear God nor regard man. So what he means is respect. I don't respect God and I don't respect people. That's in Luke 18. Cornelius. You've heard of Cornelius in the book of Acts. He is described as a devout man who feared God with all his household. He respected God and he worshipped God with all his household. And the concept of... For the fear of God reaches a climax in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, when the 24 elders worship God. Revelation 11, verse 8. And He says, And that you should reward your servants, the prophet and the saints, and those who fear your name. Now, also in the Bible, in contrast to this Positive use of the term fear is the the, the tearing, agonizing, paralyzing fear that causes people to hide. It causes people to seek darkness. To cut, to literally cut themselves from the relationships that could give them life. Is this kind of fear that I'm going to focus our attention for the remaining of this message. Not to scare you, but to give you hope. In this message of fear versus faith. When God calls out Adam as he walks in the garden in the cool of the day, Adam's answer is not primarily geographical, but rather personal. See, Adam didn't say, I'm on the north side of the Garden of Eden or the south side. No, he didn't say that. What did Adam say? Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. My friends, can not you see that Adam and Eve are no longer able to move freely into open relationship with God and rather driven by fear? And they're frantically searching for some place to hide, that's what sin does to us. It causes us to fear and to hide, it creates fear. And the first sinful instinct is always to hide under the twisted notion that the hiding is essential to preserve life when in actuality, the opposite is true. Hiding from God after we sin is the worst course of action. In fact, that's the time when we need God most. And from this point on, in the scriptures, whenever we see Adam, whenever we see we encounter fallen Adam, fallen humanity, we see fallen human beings struck by this pervasive factor of fear and we see them hiding. Cain, after killing his brother Abel, hides because he doesn't want to be found, right? He says, Whoever finds me will slay me. When we sin, we don't want to be found because of fear. Abraham's lie about his true relationship with Sarah marks his fear of being found to be the husband of the woman. He didn't want to be found to be the husband of the woman because he was fearing he was going to be killed. Jacob flees from the presence of his father and his brother, following the the treacherous. Bargaining for the birthright, what he did. And he runs away, not to be found. And when he faces the prospect of of being met by Esau, when he's coming back with all his family, he prays fervently to God. In Genesis 32, verse 11 says, Deliver me, I pray, O God, from from the hand of Esau, my brother, for I fear him and as we move on in genesis this presence of fear is seen in the return of J- joseph's brothers to egypt remember when the story when they they found they found a cup or they found the money i should say in the full sacks of the grain and have been required to bring benjamin the youngest brother the Bible says in Genesis 43:18, And the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. In the New Testament, too, just as the New Testament opens up, it is about the events of Jesus' birth. And, 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 and an angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah. That's in Luke chapter 1, verse 11. And the Bible says he was troubled, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Then you have in the ministry and life of Jesus, his disciples. Often it is recorded that the disciples were afraid, like when they were on that storm on the lake, or on the Mount of Transfiguration, or as they followed Jesus toward Jerusalem after he, 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 he told them about the cross and his sufferings. And ultimately when they all forsook him and ran away on the night of Je- when Jesus was betrayed. The disciples of Jesus were afraid. But in the gospel narratives, fear is certainly not confined to the disciples only. Herod. You know Herod the king, he is frightened by the news of a birth of the birth of a king of the Jews. The Gerasens, after Jesus healed the demoniac, they asked him to leave, for they were seized with great fear. The chief priests and Pharisees fear. What will happen to them unless they put Jesus to death? And in the resurrection morning, when the angel appeared at the tomb, Matthew reports in Matthew 28:4, for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. I don't know if they were struck to the ground or they just played dead. And in the book of Acts, same type of statement is found on the occasion of death of Ananiah. A great fear came upon all who heard of it. What is interesting and hopeful in the Bible is that against this overwhelming presence of fear is the corresponding word of God, my brothers and sisters. Do not fear. Fear not. Do not be afraid. Or what Jesus says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. And here is the hope in the Word of God. From Genesis to Revelation, the reply to Adam's fear is, You don't have to be afraid. In many instances, fear is born out of a sense of guilt or out of a sense of awareness of failure or as an anticipation of painful retribution. And on other occasions, the fear is the the fear of the unknown. What's going to happen as a result? The outcome of our presidential election. The fear arises from the prospect of Dealing with the uncertain, with the unfamiliar. But listen to me, listen to me here. No matter the circumstances, fear always gives rise to hiding, it gives rise to a distortion of reality. It gives rise to a frantic effort towards some sort of defense or protection. And in every circumstance, the Bible's word of hope is the same. Fear not. Could it be that the primary hope of the gospel, the good news of God, is simply you no longer have to be afraid? The reality is this. And this is the reality. And this is important too. Spoken by itself, fear not. Just the words of this promise has no meaning. It's only an empty mockery but a disre- in a disregard to the power of fear. So when you look at the Bible, throughout the biblical record, this primary hope, I mean word of hope, Fear not. This good news is always accompanied by a substantive reality. And this is what it is. People need not be afraid because something is happening that makes the fear no longer appropriate or necessity. Listen to this. You no longer need to be afraid, God says, because I am with you. He promised that to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is the promise that he made to Moses in preparation for the deliverance of people of Israel. He said, I am with you. I am. It is the meaning of the affirmation in Psalm 23. Remember Psalm 23, verse 4? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me, David says. And the promise reaches its fulfillment in the coming of the Messiah, whose name is Emmanuel, God with us. And the Bible ends with the same promise in Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. My friends, to Abraham, the Lord said, fear not. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. To Hagar, the words came again. Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. In whatever circumstances, in whatever the circumstance the word is spoken, it is presence, the presence of God that gives substance. I am with you. I am here. When I uh, was a child, I lived at the end of our town, our village. The first or the last house, depending on how you look at it. And in the summertime, we used to have a summer kitchen, detached from the house, about 30, 40 feet away from the house, in the back of the house. And at night, I remember sometimes our parents said, well, it's late, go to bed. In the house, of course. But me and my brother were afraid to walk to the house and would not proceed, would not move until my father would literally come and stand in the dark and say, don't worry, I'm here fear not, I am here. Do you think that my brother and I would not be afraid if my father simply said, fear not? Or will we still be afraid? But when he accompanied his word with his presence, that act of being there with us and for us will dissipate our fears of the dark. And we'll walk to the house without fear. Why? Because the Father was there. The presence of the Father made the fear go away. The tragic problem of our spiritual journey in our world today is that it is precisely the presence that the person filled with fear is driven to reject. In other words, because when we sin, the presence of God is perceived as judgment. And that's why Adam in the Garden of Eden finds it impossible to believe that the Lord calls him in order to restore a broken relationship. And instead, Adam hears the searching of God as the prelude to the direst of consequences, and he is unable To face the reality of his situation. Let me me, me, uh, frame this for you. Something that is crucial to any reconciliation process. Reconciliation when we sin against each other and against God. Reconciliation involves both judgment and forgiveness. Truth and grace. Grace. The judgment is not condemnation, although it is perceived and experienced in that form. In the biblical sense, the reality of there you are, I'm here, the reality of being found where we are and as we are makes it possible to experience forgiveness. Apart from it, the word grace is irrelevant. Have you ever thought have you ever thought this, if they really know who I am, where I am, then they would not love me, right? At the same time, the word of truth, "There you are, I love you as you are, where you are." Apart from this, Word of grace, apart from, the, from dispersing grace, the phrase, I love you, is destructive. Only when the two are held together, only when truth and grace are connected, is reconciliation realized. Therefore, in the biblical context being found, there you are. You don't need to be afraid. I am here. And I love you, presents judgment in the context of grace. And that is forgiveness. Divine forgiveness. My friends, Jesus is saying to you this morning, He is searching for you, and He says, There you are. You don't need to be afraid. I am here. And I love you. I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and dine with you and you with me. How is it possible not to have fear? How is it possible Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. Do you want your fears to go away today, this week, this year?